Mark chapter 14. We're going to start there. We're going to be there mostly, although we'll kind of spend some time in the other Gospels as well. I've been thinking a lot lately, for, and this happens every once in a while. You ever hear words a lot that you hear all the time? And for whatever reason, you hear it a certain way, and maybe it's the way somebody said it, and it's almost like you'd never heard the word before. You start thinking, that's kind of a weird word. Like, why do we say that word? I've been doing that lately with names. Like, that's kind of a weird name. And I've even been thinking about my own name, Paul. You think about my name, Paul Goebel. Uh, Goebel's a German name. Paul is, it's a Greek name. And I come from both sides. My heritage is very German. Why on earth would my parents name me some Greek name, which means small, by the way, in Greek? I'm six foot four, so that makes no sense. And obviously it's because, well, it's, there's no reason why I would be named Paul today if it weren't for the Apostle Paul, right? If, if it weren't for the Apostle Paul, there, I mean, it just wouldn't have been passed down. But because the Apostle Paul was who he was, and the way that the Lord used him, then people for centuries, particularly in the Christian world, have been naming their sons Paul. And so I stand before you as Paul, and every time that, and it's a problem, I work in a church, I hear my name all the time, and I wonder, is that to me, or is that about the guy, you know, the apostle? Which one is it, right? Or I, I think about, you know, Mary, Martha, I mean, any of these biblical names. Think about, I mean, these names, the only reason why we name people that is because of the Bible. And it's actually pretty amazing if you think about it. So you think about the name Peter. Do we have any Peters here this morning? I know we have a few, right? Peter, Pete, why do we, use, why do we name people Peter? Why do we name sons Peter? Well, because of Peter, the man Peter, the apostle Peter, right? It's, it's kind of a lineage. It's a namesake. I wonder this morning, how many Judases do we have? No, no Judas. No, okay. Why? I mean, you laugh because it would be a cruel thing for a father to name his son Judas. And yet you see, no, nobody does that. Nobody name. we have lots of Peters, but no Judases. What's the difference? Well, this morning, what we're going to talk about as we end our series on encounters with Jesus, we've looked at so many different ways that Jesus has interacted with people during his life in ministry on earth. As we end our series, I want to talk about how we respond. What does it look like for us as the people of God to respond to Jesus Christ as he pursues us, as he invites us to follow him, as he calls us to discipleship? What does response look like? And I want to look at the idea of response in two men. Not just one encounter. I'm cheating. It's the last week, so I'm putting two into one, right? Not just one response, but two. The response of Peter and the response of Judas. What I want us to wrestle with this morning as we get into what Peter did and what Judas did and their famous sins is that if you really break it down, it's the same thing. They really did the same thing. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. At its heart, it's both betrayal. And even underneath their sin, the sin beneath the sin, right? Loving self more than Christ, fearing more than trusting, 
It's the same thing. So what's the difference? Why do we now, 2,000 years later, feel very comfortable and even honored to name our sons Peter? But we will never name a son Judas. What's the difference? If they both did the same thing, if they both committed the same sin, what's the difference? That's what I want to look at today, uh, and what I want us to wrestle with together at our tables. Here's where I want to start, and it's in Mark 14. And really, it's a collision, a collision between two men, two men who followed Jesus, who walked with Jesus as his first disciples, It's a collision between two men and their particular sins at the most critical time in Jesus' life and ministry, right? Jesus is about to be arrested in this moment, and we see Judas and Peter, and they and their sinful hearts collide in this moment, and it starts a revolution. It changes the world. In fact, I would argue that God even used their sin in order to change the world. God and his sovereignty, using the sin of Judas to send Jesus to the cross to die for you and for me. God and his sovereignty, using the sin of Peter and what we'll see eventually his restoration to build the church. The reason why you and I stand here today is because Peter and those early apostles told others about Jesus and the good news, and it spread as far as now the United States 2,000 years later. These two spectacular sins collide in this one moment, Mark chapter 14. So the first thing I want to look at is betrayal. Look with me at verse 17. It says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve. So that's Jesus. Jesus came with the twelve disciples. And they were reclining at the table and eating. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. I want you as best you can to put yourself into the scene. If you've grown up in church at all, you've likely heard the story of the Last Supper. That's where this is. Jesus is dining with his disciples, something he had done many times. The difference now is it's Passover. It's a particularly meaningful religious moment for them. And I want you to put yourself... This is now, it's been three years, three years of walking with Jesus, three years of bearing witness to all that he has preached, every miracle that he has done, three years of not only walking with Jesus, but walking with one another. Think about the fellowship that they have with one another, the intimacy, the number of stories that probably exist that were never recorded in the Bible things that they said to one another, the friendships that they had not only with Christ, but with each other. I wonder if you've ever been in a band of brothers like that. If you've ever had friendship quite like that. If you've ever known men at that kind of deep level, and maybe you have to go back to being in college, being in a fraternity, or being in a club. But you think back of what it was like to have friendship that deep 
right? Not only with Christ, but with one another. And then I want you to imagine this, that your leader, as you sit down to eat together, to be with one another, your leader decides to begin this way. One of you is going to betray me. How would you feel? Undoubtedly, you feel just like the disciples would, right? Which is, well, there's no way that's possible. I don't think they're being false. I don't think they're just being particularly bold in this moment. I think that they can't, how in the, we've been walking with you for three years. You almost get, I mean, how dare you? How could you think that of us? So little of us that one of us would betray you. And you see that in their response to him. You also see that this is Jesus. (laughs) He doesn't just say things and he's never wrong. And they've witnessed this now for three years. And so they're also beginning to look at themselves and really looking at one another and saying, well, who's it going to be? Is it going to be me? Is it him? And it's not here in Mark. The other Gospels tell that Judas, Judas specifically uses him by name, says, it's not going to be me. And you wonder, what's going on in his mind? Did he mean it at the moment? In other words, do you think, I'm really not going to do that? Or this plan being hatched in his mind and his heart, is he lying? Is he trying to be false with himself, not honest with himself? Or is he being sinister? Whatever the case, we know that he directly denies it to Christ. And again, not here in Mark, but the other Gospels. Jesus says him, it's the last thing that Christ ever says to Judas. Go and do what you need to do. Go and do what you need to do. This plot that's been hatched in Judas's heart and mind. Once you think about Judas, how could it be possible? Judas was there at the feeding of the 5,000. Right? He was there at the healing of the paralytic. Judas bore witness to every single encounter that we have talked about this semester. Judas was there. You wonder, what would it be like? I mean, we, 2,000 years later, we long to have seen that. We do our best each Tuesday and each time we get in the Word to try to imagine what it would be like. Judas was there. He saw it with his own eyes. He is here with Jesus, with the disciples at the Last Supper. How could he possibly do it? How could he have betrayed Jesus the way that he did? But he did. He did. Verse 43. Verse 43. It says, Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with a crowd of swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. Have you ever wondered why did Judas choose a kiss? Mark tells us that he gave the the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin a sign. In other words, it was a conspiracy. They had conspired before this moment. They had hatched a plan. This was just spur of the moment. Uh, There was a lot that went into making this happen. And Judas decides the sign, the way that he's going to give Jesus away, is he's going to kiss him. Why a kiss? That's become uh, a, I mean, 
a metaphor for so many things in our culture, the idea of betraying somebody with a kiss. I think it speaks to why Judas betrayed Jesus in the first place. It's ironic. Kiss is a sign of intimacy, right? A sign of affection. It's a sign of love. It says, I love you. And deep down beneath what Judas did in betraying Christ, underneath all of that was love. He failed to love Jesus. Though he followed Jesus, though he listened to Jesus, though he saw Jesus do the things that Jesus did, he did not love Jesus. And what I think all of us should hear this morning as a warning to us is that it's possible to do things that on the outside, anybody looking at Judas the three years prior to this, would have said, you are a follower of Christ. You're with him. You're doing things with him. You're hearing his teaching. Yet over these three years, deep down in his heart, beneath what anybody could see, he did not actually love him. It's possible to, on the outside, look like a Christian, look like a follower, look like a disciple, and yet have no love in your heart for the things of Christ, for Christ himself. Let that be a warning to you. It's a warning to me. Because underneath all of this, this is why he betrays. We're told uh, that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Okay, that's what he got in return. In a minute, we'll see what that 30 pieces of silver, how it weighed on him. That's roughly about $7,500 today. That's not a lot of money, if you think about it, for what it is, for what he did. 7500 bucks. Yeah, that can perhaps even in those days have gone a long way, but even if it was just a six months to a year of life, how does that compare to knowingly sending someone to their deaths? Right, to giving so to betraying your friend, your teacher, 7,500 bucks. But what I want you to wrestle with this morning is that deep down you and I are no different. Deep down you and I are no different. That we we the truth is, is we betray Christ every single day in the way that we turn our backs on him and the way that we pine after other things other than Him, and the way that we fail to love Him. And what I want to do in the next just couple minutes to show you this is my goal is not to make you feel guilty. And if you leave here, this I I do not want you to leave here feeling like you've been guilted in to feeling like you were like Judas. I don't want you to sit here and just compare yourself to him or Peter. But what I want you to see and what I want you to wrestle with is you already are like Judas. You already are like Peter. And you say, well, how could I? I would have never done that, right? And like Peter, Peter's, but we're about to read Peter. Peter says, I'm not going to do, I'm never going to deny you. And I think we mean that when we say that. I think we mean that when we feel that even now as we read these stories. But the reality is we sell them out every day. How much is Jesus worth to you? Is there anything in your life that you love more than Jesus Christ. And right now you say, well, no, nothing. 
Of course, of course not, nothing, right? Just like, I mean, and I get that. So let me ask the question a different way. Is there anything in your life that you treat as if you loved it more than Jesus Christ? That though deep down in your heart, you know that you long, and I believe this, as Christians, this is so true, it's so true of me. I long to love Christ more than anything else. I long for that. I want that. I want to honestly be able to live that way. But the reality is, if you look at my life, my actions, there are things that I historically treat as if I love them more than Christ. And if you put those things up in comparison to Him, they're worth a whole lot less than 7500 bucks. Worthless things. Worthless things that we set our eyes on. Worthless things that come after our hearts, that want our affections. These things that we think promise us life, that promise us intimacy, that promise us fellowship, communion, that never deliver. In those moments, as we turn after those things, whatever it is, whatever it is that you love or treat as if you love more than Christ, you're betraying him. And so am I. And so am I. But Peter was no different. Peter was no different. I want to look at Peter's denial. Look at verse 26. It's the second paragraph there on your sheet. Mark 14, verse 26. Again, this is the same night. So we're backing up a little bit. They've had the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper together. They've had the Last Supper. Jesus has said, one of you will betray me. Okay? One of you will do this. He knows it's Judas. Judas knows it's Judas. And then the very next scene, after supper, they find themselves in the Mount of Olives. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn. And by the way, Judas has fled at this point. So Judas, seeing what, <laughs> go and do what you need to do, Judas is gone. So now it's just 11. There's 11 left, 11 with Jesus in the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, and Jesus says to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay, again, I want you to put yourself in this moment. And what, again, 12 men in brotherhood together following Jesus. Jesus just calls them out and says, one of you betray me, and Judas leaves. What do you think they're thinking now? <laughs> wow, Ju I mean, it was Judas. Okay, so it's just us left. It's us 11. I can't believe what's just happened. Judas has left their band of brothers. And it's just the 11 left. You're thinking, okay, it's down to us. And now, and now Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. <laughs> Every one of you are going to fall away. And not only am I just saying this to you, but this is actually prophetic. This was prophesied. This is actually in Scripture. Right? I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He says, all of you will fall away. And again, what do you think they're thinking? I'm not going to be like Judas. And Peter, verse 29, Peter says to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. I love this for so many reasons. This is so my response. I wonder if it's yours too. It, it would have been enough for Peter just to say, I'm not going to fall away. But what does he say? Even though they all fall away. Look, I'm not like them, Jesus. Don't you know that by now? Look, it's me, it's Peter. <laughs> they are all going to fall away. I'm not like them. 
I'm different. I'm better. I'm not like Judas. I'm not like any any of these guys even. I am not like them. Though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Again, I don't think they're being false here. I think they they long to be truthful as they say this. They can't imagine a scenario where they would possibly do this. I think you and I are the same way. I mean, we long so badly to be the men that God has called us to be. And yet the reality is we find that our hearts, they really are weak. They are weak. And Peter's was too. Though in his passion and his zeal, he said that this would never happen to him. Though Peter is almost loyal to a fault, he still finds himself put in a position where he denies Jesus Christ three times. Not once, but three times. I want you to look at verse 66. It's at the bottom of your page. Peter's denial. How could Peter do that? How could Peter, after what he has witnessed, say that he does not know Christ? Refuse to be associated with Jesus? How could Peter be so ashamed to be a follower, to be one of Christ's disciples? Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, the high priest, came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He lies to her. But not only is he lying to her, but in that moment, he is denying Christ. He is saying, I do not know him. I don't even understand what you're saying. I've never even heard the name before in my life. We read on. It says, he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And you think, well, how are Peter, how is it any different than Judas? I mean, isn't what Judas did much worse, right? He betrayed, he's the one that sent Jesus to death. But here's Peter, and what I want you to recognize, not just once, but three times he denies Christ. And on the third time, he invokes a curse on himself. Now, we don't do this a lot in our culture anymore. But what he is doing is he's saying, look, I swear to death. I swear to death. You can, you can kill me that I do not know Jesus Christ. What would drive somebody to speak that boldly with that much fire and passion against everything that they think they stand for, everything that they've followed for three years? What would drive Peter to do that? Fear. It's a powerful force, isn't it? He was afraid. He was afraid of what would be done to him that he would end up just like Jesus. 
And brothers, I want to tell you we should be afraid of the same thing because Christ told us that all those who follow him will be persecuted. Right? That so they have done unto me, they will do unto you. Peter was taught that. Yet in this moment, he's I want none of it, right? Fear of man, he doesn't want to be he doesn't want people to associate him with Jesus. And I wonder how often does this actually happen in our lives, day in and day out? Maybe in not so bold ways. Perhaps you have never tried to invoke a curse on yourself. But maybe in small ways that you have not really wanted to be associated with Jesus. That maybe you felt embarrassed to call yourself a Christian. Perhaps in some business deal on a new opportunity that you find yourself in a city that you don't know around people who don't know you, and you hide that part of who you are, right? You know, for the next couple days, just while I'm doing this, I'm going to push that Christian part of me aside because I just don't know where they stand, and I don't want that to rub them the wrong way. How often do we, because we're afraid of what people might think of us and what we believe, particularly now, and this will get much, much harder, I believe, in our lifetime. Particularly in the U.S., it's going to get harder for us to socially associate ourselves with the things of Christ. To live differently, right? That now, because of certain of our ethics, we can be called bigots and be hated for what we believe. How easy is it for us, because of the fear, fear of man, to in very small ways, just like Peter, deny that we know him. Deep down, aren't we just like Peter? Aren't we just like Judas? So what's the difference? What's the difference between the two? We see um, in Judas, he's filled with great regret. He's filled with great regret. We're going to see that in a second. But in Peter, we see something vastly different. We see repentance. We see that he is overwhelmed, overwhelmed with what he has done. Not the act itself, not the sin, but who he has sinned against. He realizes that this person whom he has loved and loves still, that he has denied him. I want you to see this. This is verse 71. So again, he begins to evoke a curse on himself and to swear. He says, I do not know this man. And immediately we're told, verse 72, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. He remembered what Jesus said to him. You're going to deny me, Peter. He remembers his friend, his Lord, Jesus Christ, the one who loves him. And he realizes he has betrayed this love, that he has denied his Savior, the one who he longs for. And he weeps. I think in this moment, we, begin to get, we get a glimpse of Peter's repentance. Right? Tears of repentance as he is turning back to Christ, remembering what Christ had said to him, remembering and recognizing what he did ultimately was not just an immoral thing, but as a betrayal of the one he loves. But what we see in Judas is something completely different. We see in Judas regret. I want you to turn the page over 
or turn in your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew records what happened to Judas after he betrays Jesus. And there's some unique details that Matthew gives us that the other gospel writers don't. Verse 3, Matthew tells us that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I think it's interesting. I think uh, in some ways you could argue that maybe Judas didn't realize just how bad this was going to get. Maybe in Judas's mind, he never could have imagined that they'd actually kill the man, right? Maybe just thought, well, we'll just get him arrested. That's not a big deal. You know, and how often so much of our sin is so like that. It's how Satan deceives us, right? It's not that bad. And yet what, what we see before Judas's eyes is everything's unraveling. Before Judas's eyes, he sees that Jesus is condemned. And notice what it says. He changed his mind. He changed his mind. He looks at the consequences of his actions, and he says, I don't like those consequences. The reality is, is there's consequences to every sin that we commit. And the reality is if we're honest and we had enough wisdom, we'd recognize that none of those consequences are good. <laughs> That's universal. That the consequence, just bare level, you take God out of it. The things that we, I mean, there's a reason why God's given us commandments. This is for our good or our flourishing. To follow him is going to lead to flourishing. To go against him, is, it's not going to end well. There's consequences to every sin that we commit. And we feel those consequences every single day, and we don't like them. And so it's, this isn't uh, rocket science. We do this all the time. Judas, he's looking at what he's done. He's saying, this, oops, <laughs> I've really screwed up. And then he's doing something that all of us do as well. The moment we realize these consequences are not good, what do we do? We've got to figure out a way out of this. We've got to work ourselves out of this mess. Sometimes what that looks like is kind of like David did at first, right? King David, after sinning with Bathsheba, and now she's pregnant, right? We, we try to handle it on our own, and it gets from bad to worse. Judas, he's, he's seeing what's happened. He changes his mind, and notice what he tries to do. He's trying to mitigate the situation on his own. He brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. And he says, verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. In other words, I take it back. Take it away. I want to give it back. I want to make it right. I want to make it right. And notice they say, and I love this because this is true. It's true of everything that we do. You can't. You can't take it back. You can't take the silver back. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And notice what he does next. He went and he hanged himself. Why? He was overwhelmed with regret. Regret. Regret that was selfish and self-centered. Regret that said, I wish I hadn't have done this. I don't like the consequences of what I've done. Regret that said, I need to find a way to fix this on my own. To handle this situation on my own. 
and to get myself out of the mess I have made. And yet he realizes that he can't. There is no possible way for him to get out of his sin on his own. And he is overwhelmed with that kind of grief that he went and he hanged himself because he couldn't bear it. Apostle Paul tells us 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. I want you to hear this. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, Paul says that there's two kinds of grief. There is godly grief and worldly grief. Or to put it another way, there's godly grief and godless grief. Godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Godless grief leads to death. Judas had godless grief. God had nothing to do with it. It was all him. And all him just trying to get himself out of his own sin, and he couldn't bear the weight of it. Brothers, we cannot bear the weight of our own sin. You cannot get yourself out of the mess you have made. You cannot take it back. That there, there is no way forward there. There's only going backwards. And so what do we do? Peter, Peter does something vastly different. Under the weight of his grief, we see that it's not godless, but it is godly. Hearing the voice of his Savior reminding him that you would do this three times, he breaks down and he weeps. The Gospel of John tells us that there on the beach, after Jesus has now been resurrected from the dead, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, is looking at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. The question is so important. He could have asked him anything. Peter, do you take it back? Peter, are you going to continue to deny me? Peter, are you going to do it right this time? But no, he asked, do you love me? And every time Peter says yes, because I believe that he means it with all his heart. You see, Peter recognized something that's so important, that repentance, repentance is not regret. It's not just feeling bad about what you've done, but repentance is something vastly different. In fact, I would say repentance has more to do with our relationship with Jesus than it has to do with the ethics of sin. Yes, it's stop sinning. But more than just stop sinning, it's turn back to Jesus Christ, the one who loves you, the one who died for you, the one who wants to commune with you, the one who wants you to love him in response. Why did Peter do it? Why, was, why did Peter respond differently than Judas? Why did Peter turn back to Jesus Christ? Why did Peter respond? Why was Peter restored? This is where I want to end this morning. We'll go to our tables. Luke 31. Luke 31, Luke records what's going on in the background. What's happening while all this is happening in the spiritual realm? And Jesus tells Peter, after he's betrayed him, after he's come back to him, he says, Simon, Simon, verse 31, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. The you here is plural. In other words, I think he's talking about all of his disciples. Satan demanded to have my disciples, all of you, to sift you like wheat, right? And he did. He sifted them. They all fell away. 
Judas ultimately fell away, I mean, completely. The other 11, they come back. Why? For Peter's case, listen to verse 32. This is where we'll end. But I prayed for you. In the Greek here, the you is singular. Peter, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But you notice a couple things. Jesus Christ tells Peter that he prayed for him. Brothers, Jesus Christ, your Savior, the one who loves you, is praying for you now. He lives to intercede for you right here and right now. Even as I teach this morning, as we break up into our tables, even while you are sinning, Christ lives to intercede for you. What is he praying? He's praying that your faith would not fail. He is guarding your faith from the heavenly realms. He is fighting for you that you would return to him. But not only is he fighting for you, but he's doing so with confidence as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Last thing, notice what he says, when you have turned again. Not if you will turn again, not I hope you will turn again, but when. When, Peter, because I know that you will. I know that you will turn again. Notice that language, the language of repentance. When you repent, when you return back to me, when you will come back to me, go and strengthen your brothers. What I want us to see this morning is that we have a Savior, that though we betray Him and though we deny Him, He lives to fight for us. He lives to intercede for us. And He is calling us to turn away from our sin and to come back to Him. Not just to put our sin away, but to come back to a godly fellowship with the one who's loved us all along. Will you turn back to him? Will you live a life, as Luther said, of continual repentance? We're going to put that into practice right now. By coming back to Jesus as a bunch of sinners, brothers, and praying for one another and getting in the word together, as we enjoy that we have been called to commune with him. Let me pray for you and we'll go to our tables. Father, as we end this uh, series and this semester, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these encounters. And in every one, we we confess and we we see ourselves in in every one of them. Father, I pray that as we now wrestle at our tables, that what we would not fall prey into is to to feel... um, godless grief, to feel shame, recognizing that we are no different than Judas and Peter and what they did, but that we would be overwhelmed with the knowledge that your son, Jesus Christ, now sits at your right hand, and that he, even as I pray, is praying for us, that our faith would not fail. We pray that we would respond, that we would respond to that prayer, that we would turn back to you, that we would enjoy fellowship with you. Now, as we leave this place and in the days to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.